You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This program is brought to you in part by our amazing subscribers at Patreon. Join them now at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience. Like them, you can get early access to ad-free episodes, exclusive bonus content, and more. Our Patreon subscribers help keep us in production, and you can too. It's easy to sign up at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience. Thanks for your support. Near-death experiences that happen during medical emergencies can be as weird as they are profound. Some say it feels like having your soul sucked out of your body or having time and space stop. It's as if infinity, a sort of infinitely dark black infinity had emerged next to me. The phenomena of near-death experiences are poorly understood. The most common explanations are often tied to religion or mysticism. Some even claim they are proof of an afterlife. Now, researchers in various disciplines are diving deep into these bizarre events. With this new approach, will we uncover the scientific underpinning of these events? This is Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, an exploration of the conscious mind, what we do and don't know about near-death experiences, and a possible evolutionary explanation for having visions at death's door. This episode in our regular look at critical thinking is Skeptic Check Near-Death Experiences. I was surprised to learn that near-death experiences are so common. Nearly one in 10 critically ill patients have them, according to a study by Norwegian and Danish researchers. The experiences include bright lights, out-of-body sensations, and weird distortions of space and time. For a long time, people just kept these under wraps. I mean, they because they just were worried, you know, what will people think about it? You know, I've had this, you know, experience where I've gone through the tunnel and seen the white lights and talked to dead relatives, which is, you know, one of the common experiences that people report. They were considered kind of crazy. These phenomena have long fascinated religious scholars for what they might suggest about an afterlife. But now, near-death experiences are generating more interest by scientists, particularly those who study consciousness. So when the New York Academy of Sciences announced a conference with the intriguing title, Explorations in Consciousness, Death, Psychedelics, and Mystical Experience, 
Molly had to attend. Seth, it was fascinating. Members of the public were in attendance and a few journalists as well for this one-day event. We listened to presentations from religious scholars like Karen Armstrong and the philosopher and physician Raymond Moody. Are you familiar with him, Seth? I can't say that I am, no. Well, he's well-known in some circles for his studies and books about near-death experiences and the afterlife. You know, Molly, I hate to say it, but this has all the hallmarks of woo-woo science. Well, I understand. But there were also newcomers to the field in attendance, neuroscientists, who approached the subject quite differently. Also in attendance was my friend and former colleague, Steve Paulson, the executive producer of To the Best of Our Knowledge out of Wisconsin Public Radio. He has long been fascinated by the subject of consciousness and was invited to moderate a panel. And he says there is a fair amount of debate over how to define a near-death experience. But here's his overview. The most common way that people talk about it is people who've had a cardiac arrest, a heart attack. And it's people who clinically have died for a little bit, for a short period of time. And what people report with these near-death experiences, I mean, the big ones are extraordinary. I mean, people who seem to have gone into another dimension and they often talk about, this is wonderful. I mean, this is, I mean, to use religious language, I mean, some people would describe it as, you know, heavenly in some way. So there are kind of physiological Things that seem to happen, I mean, especially sort of visual kinds of, whether it's hallucinations, you know, the white light, the tunnel, but also as an emotional experience, people usually report it as as kind of life-changing. Wow. So these are people who feel they have had an experience with the supernatural. Yes, exactly. And some would call it a mystical experience. Steve will give us an overview of how all these things connect. Uh, Near-death experiences, consciousness, mysticism... But first, Seth, perhaps the most compelling moment of the conference was when the writer Sebastian Younger recounted his near-death experience. The author of The Perfect Storm? The very same. A few years ago, Mr. Younger uh, suddenly became very ill when an undiagnosed aneurysm caused his pancreas to rupture. He was rushed to the emergency room as his body was shutting down. All of a sudden, I felt this pull my body's getting pulled downwards. And I kind of looked, and below me on the left is this pit. It's this hole, it's this dark hole. But it's not even a hole, it's like, it's as if infinity, a sort of infinitely dark, black infinity had emerged next to me. And I was getting pulled into it. And I didn't know I was dying, but I knew that you don't want to get pulled into, into the infinite dark pit, right? Like, it was just like, <laughs> I just intuitively knew, you go in there, you are not coming out. And I was getting pulled in, and I started panicking, and then my dead father appeared above me. Now, I'm going to reiterate, I'm an atheist, I'm not religious, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. My dad was a physicist. He was the ultimate rationalist. He didn't believe anything that you couldn't measure and couldn't test and... So obviously religion fails that standard, and that was my, that was my dad, right? And um, there he was, above me, very benevolent. He was like, it's okay, you can come with me. Like, you don't, you don't have to fight it. You're gonna be okay, come with me. I was like, come with you, you're dead. I'm not going with you. Like, <laughs> and, um, and I said to the doctor, you gotta hurry, you're losing me right now, I'm going. He clearly had a... a an experience that's 
quite extraordinary, I gotta say. Yes, and you heard him say that he is an atheist. He's not prone to think about mystical experiences. But Sebastian Younger said that his near-death event fundamentally changed him. In fact, he's writing a book about it. For one, it shook his sense of certainty about what happens to us after we die. I was taken to the threshold. I was allowed to go to the threshold and look over the edge, and then I was permitted to come back. What did I learn? I, I, I wish I could say, so I believe in an afterlife. I don't, I don't, but I definitely have lost the certitude of my rationality. I definitely, what I have now are questions. I guess what I would say is it's possible that there is some kind of post-death existence in the form of some kind of energy, some kind of uh, quantum phenomenon that we don't understand, that there may be something that exists that interacts with this reality in ways that we don't understand. So what should we make of all this? If someone has undergone a near-death experience where they felt they were looking into the abyss or looking at eternity itself, it would be only natural to conclude that the explanation is supernatural or religious. Well, it's clear that something extraordinary is going on, but we don't see it as proof of the existence of an afterlife. It is evidence that there are things we don't yet understand about consciousness or about our minds or what happens to them as they begin to shut down in a traumatic situation. Steve Paulson says there's an inherent tension as people pursue an explanation for these weird and even exhilarating experiences. People have certain, I guess I would say, disciplinary biases or perspectives. Like a neuroscientist is going to look for stuff that's happening in the brain to explain why we think and feel the way we do. A religious scholar is going to probably come at this from a very different perspective of, you know, a mystical experience, and they're not going to start looking for brain-based explanations. And so I think just in terms of the approaches of those different disciplines, it's, it's extremely different perspectives and kind of different worldviews. Now, it's not often that a conference brings together both scientists and religious scholars, but explaining near-death experiences seems to be intriguing enough to attract many disciplines of study. Steve, this conference that we both attended brought a lot of ideas together that at first glance might seem disparate. Consciousness, death, psychedelics, the mystical experience. These seem like different areas of study, and yet something drew them together. They have a common denominator. And what is that? Yeah. I would say the common denominator is trying to explain and bring together these extraordinary experiences in the the general field of consciousness. So, I mean, there are some similarities between psychedelics and near-death experiences, for instance. I mean, these kind of mystical experiences that science maybe can explain. There might be some parts of it that they can't explain. And then bringing in the mystical experience piece of it, which really tends to be more in the field of religion. So to bring all of these things together was very interdisciplinary. And that's the thing that sort of brought it together. And I think one thing that was really interesting was to have scientists, you know, showing charts of brain activity along with people like Raymond Moody, who is the founder of the whole field of near-death experiences, to have them in the same room, in the same day. I mean, that's quite unusual. And did you find that the scientists were raising an eyebrow at the idea of mysticism, that that was something that doesn't fall into the, the usual scientific discourse and can't actually be defined by science? Actually, I think scientists are trying to define a mystical experience in some ways. I'm more familiar with what 
psychedelic researchers are doing right now. And so, I mean, one of the most common experiences in psychedelic experiences and, and one of the most transformative is when people say they've had a big mystical experience. And so these scientists who do this, I mean, these are psychopharmacologists and psychiatrists, neuroscientists. They have come up with a rubric of what is a mystical experience. And there are several categories that they use. And so one is... Uh, transcendence of space and time. One is the sense of unity, sort of the feeling that your your sense of self has disappeared. Another one they talk about is ineffability, that you can't you can't really explain this. You can't describe it. It's sort of an experience beyond words. And then another experience is the noetic feeling that it sort of it feels more real than just normal waking life. And so these are scientists who've come up with this rubric of what is a mystical experience. And why is it hard and why also is it important to find a language to explain some of these profound experiences that people have? Well, if you don't have a language, if you can't put it into words in some way, then how are you going to talk about it? Well, I could just say this really weird thing <laughs> happened to me. Why isn't that sufficient? Yeah. Well, I mean, sort of the field of, of near-death experiences is interesting. So, I mean, Raymond Moody essentially created this field several decades ago. And at that time, I mean, there was there was a time when when people who had near-death experiences didn't want to talk about them because they were considered kind of crazy. I mean, they're, oh, you you had what? And so for a long time, people just kept these under wraps. I mean, they because they just were worried, you know, what will people think about it? You know, I've had this, you know, experience where I've, you know, gone through the tunnel and seen the white lights and talked to dead relatives, which is, you know, one of the common experiences that people report. A lot of people thought that was weird. And so what happened then when Moody and then others later came along and kind of created this field and more people said, yeah, these are actually fairly common experiences, then it became legitimate to talk about it and you needed a language to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So the search for a language was also a way of saying we want to bring this out from, we want to erase the stigma of these experiences and we want people to talk about them. Give us an overview of what interests you about this, because you have been reporting on consciousness for many years now. Probably about 15 years. Yeah. Do you think you're getting closer to the answer of what it is or or mysticism or some of these out-of-body experiences, if we can say that? So what has held your fascination about this subject? The deeper you go in the subject, the more questions it, th- that come up. I mean, it's just like there's, there's no What's easy an example? answer. Give us some. We can handle it. <laughs> Um, how much can neuroscience explain what's happening in a near-death experience? I mean, the not just the sort of the, the what's going on in the brain, the, the sort of the physical mechanics of it, but the actual experience of, I mean, going back to this question of, you know, encountering a loved one, where does that come from? I mean, and that's, so I'm particularly interested in kind of going to, the edges of science. So science is, you know, wonderful at explaining some things, but when it comes to personal experience, uh, what I would call phenomenology, the actual subjective experience of in someone's mind, science has a really hard time explaining that. You know, you you, you sort of have to have someone report that to you. Um, you know what happened, but what is actually going on there? And that's it's it's pretty mysterious. Do you think that science has a problem explaining that? And just to remind you, you are on a science program. You love science. We know oh, that, right? Yeah, we love absolutely, that about you. yeah. <laughs> Teasing you about that. But is it is it that science hasn't gotten, hasn't produced an answer yet? So maybe scientists haven't been able to crack the code of what leads to consciousness, but they're closer to it or to some of these experiences? 
So, so I guess the question is, why is it out of the realm of science? It might just, science isn't there yet. It might not be out of the realm. I mean, I think that's a question to be determined. Science has been very good at trying to map the neural correlates of consciousness. And so, you know, mapping, you know, what has happening in particular parts of the brain with people's experience. And, you know, you can sort of, you know, you talk to the people and, you know, you can shut down particular parts of the brain, you know, certain mental experiences will, will result. That's different than causation. That's different than saying, uh, you know, going back to this question of why would someone encounter a dead relative during a, a near-death experience? I don't think science has a clue right now where in the brain that might be happening. Maybe they'll figure it out at some point, but there's, they're nowhere near that, and they don't really have any tools right now to even try to answer that question. It was interesting. One of the panelists said that in the case where somebody has a near-death experience and they do see a relative, it's not a living relative. It tends to be the dead reach out in these experiences or these hallucinations or whatever we might call them in the brain, which is pretty interesting. Right. And, you know, and if you want to take a more, I don't know, spiritual or religious perspective on that, you'd say that, you know, this other entity, this consciousness of the dead person is coming back to visit you. My father came to yeah, me, or the exactly. content is, I right. looked down the deep abyss, or my life Or I have passed. my life flashed before me, and I have this life review of, and, you know, it was very meaningful. I have no idea whether science will ever be able to explain that. Maybe, but, you know, it's nowhere near uh, close to that right now. And so, so that's the question of, are these, are these questions unknowable? And, I mean, going again back to the mystical tradition, I mean, that's sort of this famous thing that the great mystics talked about. I mean, there's this great mystical text called The Cloud of Unknowing. And the whole point of that was that it, there was ultimate unknowing in the nature of reality. And in this case, you know, the person would be talking about the nature of God. That's in a religious context. And the question is, does that translate into, you know, trying to understand these experiences that we have today, you know, like psychedelics and near-death experiences? But how old is that religious text? Hundreds, thousands of years old? Uh, so I, I think maybe Middle Ages. Middle Ages. Okay. Right. So is that still relevant to today? I mean, there are a lot of things we didn't know back then. I mean, we, we didn't know about germ theory. You know, people talked about disease being passed through the air, the miasma theory of disease. We're coming back to consciousness here. <laughs> okay, keep <laughs> so Consciousness is a whole day where consciousness is a different category than germ theory. I mean, consciousness is deeply mysterious. And even people, someone like Christoph Koch, who's one of the most famous neuroscientists in the world who studies consciousness, he would say consciousness is mysterious. And he spent his whole career studying consciousness. But the actual phenomenal experience of consciousness itself is, I'm not sure he would say that, you know, we're terribly close to understanding that. Well, Steve Paulson, what a pleasure it is to talk to you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Molly. This is, uh, it's, you know, usually I'm the one, you know, holding the mic and asking the other person questions. So it's fun to be on the other side of this. That was Steve Paulson talking to Molly about a recent conference at the New York Academy of Sciences about consciousness and near-death experiences. Steve is executive producer of Wisconsin Public Radio's To the Best of Our Knowledge. Well, what does science have to say about phenomena that have, essentially by default, been the purview of religious scholars? 
While we're skeptical that near-death experiences are evidence of life after death, their content is so personal, as Steve said, we have to ask whether neuroscientists can explain what's causing them and determine whether they mean anything. One way of answering that is to examine what might be happening in the brain during this sort of trauma. We hear from neuroscientist Christoph Koch about what near-death experiences suggest about consciousness. This episode of our regular look at critical thinking is Skeptic Check Near-Death Experiences. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Is your anaconda getting squeaky? Your cobra too dry? Maybe you have a python too fat to squeeze into its lair. Well... Slippery Serpent is here to help. Slippery Serpent is the industry leader in 100% pure, organic, and artisanal oil made from snakes for snakes okay, Seth, Seth, by snakes. What are you doing? What are you doing? Well, I'm reading this ad copy from a new sponsor, a Viper Rub or something like that. Got to pay the bill somehow. Seth, it's literally snake oil. Yeah, but it's artisanal snake oil. Well, I think our listeners would rather go to patreon.com slash bigpicturescience and help us directly than to hear you stoop to being a snake oil salesman. How low can you go? Well, in my case, pretty low. But you're right, Molly. Artisanal snake oil salesman, not much to aspire to. Listeners can easily join us, though, on Patreon and give small monthly donations to help keep us in production. Plus, you can hear each episode before the podcast is released, and you don't have to listen to any ads. And any amount helps. And at the $5 a month level, you'll get access to exclusive bonus material, like Seth's recent conversation with assistant producer Brian Edwards about gravitational waves. It's an attractive subject. So please join us at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience and get early access to ad-free episodes and more. And we appreciate your support. Thank you. We heard that there are generally two points of entry for the discussion and explanation of near-death experiences. A religious or spiritual angle may suggest the existence of an afterlife. And while science provides more conventional explanations of what might be happening in the brain, for neuroscientist Christoph Koch, that rationale does not invalidate the claims themselves. People bring back something from these experiences and you can't argue with them and I'm not going to argue with anyone else. They experience what they experience. However, as a scientist, of course, it still behooves me to ask the question, what is the physical substrate? What is the underlying substrate under which condition does it? Is it repeatable? Are there common elements across different people? Does it depend on you being uh, religiously brought up? Or, you know, if you're a different religion, do you experience different types of experiences? Those are all legitimate questions that science can answer. The subjective nature of these experiences does create a challenge for researchers. We heard one person's doubt about whether science can even provide an explanation for the content of near-death experiences, which is often intensely personal. 
Dr. Koch acknowledges the limits of scientific study of experiences that can't be replicated in controlled conditions. If you can't control them, it's very difficult to study them systematically, like their brain bases, right? It's only to the extent that you can evoke these experiences under more controlled condition that they become an object of sort of more rigorous studies. Otherwise, what you can do, what people have done, you can collect case histories throughout our culture, throughout other cultures. You can look at the demographics of people to have them. And of course, you can look at what effect have these changes had on their lives of these people. Christoph Koch is best known for his work on the neural basis for consciousness. He too attended the conference at the New York Academy of Sciences to present how near-death events are unique opportunities to study consciousness itself. While consciousness is enormously complex, we might learn something about it when it flickers, as it does in a medical emergency. The way that scientists study a diseased organ to help reveal its normal functioning, fundamental physiological changes could produce extraordinary visions. For example, it might be that being deprived of oxygen, a state called hypoxia, gives rise in the brain to the out-of-body or time dilation feelings, even producing bright lights or other visual phenomena. Dr. Koch finds it curious that these experiences are characteristic of other altered states of consciousness, such as dreaming and the effects of psychedelics. I find them very interesting from a scientific point of view because A, they show you extreme conditions under which you can have very intense conscious felt experiences where you have no more body, you have no more ego. It's almost very close to what Buddhists, some types of Buddhists call pure consciousness, pure experience, where almost everything can be stripped away, but you're highly conscious. And I found that last point very interesting, Seth, because I was under the impression that someone having a near-death experience, or NDE as they call them, is unconscious or in some sort of liminal state between consciousness and unconsciousness. But Dr. Koch corrected my misguided notion. And by definition, they're conscious because otherwise they wouldn't, quote, come back and tell you about whatever experience they had. Ah, ah, but you say that they come back, uh, which suggests that they slip into unconsciousness, they have these experiences, and then they come back into full consciousness. So you're saying that's not the case. Look, what happens typically in the clinic, so let's take a modern description of uh, of near-death experiences, cardiac arrest, right? So you have a heart attack, you're being brought, you know, rushed to the hospital, there are all these people that put electrodes on you and people are running and, you know, you're in, in agony and pain. And then at some point, something happens probably once the brain is uh, hypoxic, when your brain is um, starving for oxygen, it sends an alarm and there appears to be this paradoxical hyperactivity in particular parts of the brain, the outermost layer of the brain. And then you seem to come to this place where you don't feel the pain and you're often not even aware of the outside world anymore. Instead, you have these very intense, either no encounter, you just encounter some absolute emptiness or you encounter, let's say, your father or, you know, a figure, a mentor, then what happens, you know, at some point you may truly become unconscious because very often the doctors, they sedate you and then you wake up two or three hours later, you know, in your hospital bed and then you then you're full of this experience. You recount this experience. That's very interesting. I thought it was a state of near unconsciousness, or maybe it is near unconsciousness, but not, okay, (laughs) you corrected me. No, no, they're very opposite. Okay, you corrected me. You corrected me on that. Thank you. And I think at this point, I should address one question. It's common said that this shows that 
the brain isn't required for consciousness because uh, people have flatlined, right? You hear that, that claim very calm, i.e. that the EG has gone isoelectric and they still had this experience. That's simply not true. The problem is, so when you have this near-death experience, as I explained, typically these days it's in the clinic and you, you, know, you wake up two, three, four hours later. And so you had this experience, but it's very difficult to exactly align it at what exact time, time by the clock, did it occur, right? And the only way I can do that is, is to have some sort of marker to say, okay, at this point, at you know, two hours and 11 minutes, the EG went flat, and at two hours, 11 minutes, the person had this uh, near-death experience. There is no evidence like that. But that may account for why I was confused as to whether it was an experience of consciousness or unconsciousness, because of the idea that, in my mind, that it's linked with the flatlining. Yeah, but that's simply not true. There's no evidence whatsoever in any of the thousands of cases that, you know, an EG that's truly isoelectric, right, that that subject has any experience whatsoever. Now, when you talk about the brain losing oxygen, and is there a systematic way in which the brain loses oxygen right to left, top to bottom? Certain areas might go epoxic first? Or That's a very good question. I don't. There are, people have sometimes reported asymmetry, like the left is more susceptible to hypoxic damage than the right. Uh, but this is not known, particularly in people it's not known. You know, it's, it's very difficult to study. People are now studying it in, in rats and in mice, which have a brain that's very similar to ours. It's just uh, smaller to try to get at this, um, these details. And I think these details matter because the way your, your brain powers down and the way your brain powers up may be critical for some aspects of the, the near-death experience. So I wonder if we're creeping up on a definition of, of what a near-death experience is, according to the neuroscientists. Is the near-death experience, I don't want to say simply, but a phenomenon created by the loss of oxygen in certain parts of the brain? It may be a phenomenon that's triggered by that, not caused, because ultimately the, we believe the physical substrate is neural activity. So ultimately it's caused by some neurons that fire for some amount of time and out of that activity or lack of the activity, it depends, out of that collective neuronal substrate, that is the substrate for your conscious experience. So what it tells us that the brain, you can put the brain in a state where it's capable of having extremely unusual experiences, very different from everyday experiences, including the loss of self, the loss of time, the loss of uh, space. And... In studying these or in looking at case studies and, and the accounts of near-death experiences, what have you learned about consciousness? So having myself gone through a near-death experience, what it has uh, sort of fortified and sort of beyond doubt is the fact that it really goes back to René Descartes, you know, and the most famous dictum, Pogito Ergo Sum that ultimately the only way I know I exist is because I'm conscious. At this point when I had my near-death experience, there, there was nothing there anymore. There was just bright light of unbearable brightness. There wasn't space. There wasn't to the left or to the right or above and below. There simply was no space. And there was no body and there was no Christoph. There was no memory, no dreams, no desires, no fears, nothing that. There was just terror and ecstasy. So it tells me two things, that A, consciousness is primary. Before I know about the existence of an external world, before I know anything, I know that I'm conscious. 
And B, it tells me I don't need a self. My self is not required to be conscious. In fact, some of the, I think a key aspect of what we before called transformative experience is the loss of self. There's no self, you, you know, this, this voice that always guides you, that always looks out for you, that can sometimes very often get in the way of things, right? This can be gone and you have this blessed, this heard silence that's there, but you're still highly conscious. Whatever remains is still highly conscious. What's the difference between being aware that you are conscious and aware of the self? It seems like those would be intertwined. It would be hard to have the experience of knowing that you're conscious, but having the absence of the knowledge or understanding of the self. Do you ever dream? <laughs> yes, I do. Do you have a self in your dream? Are you ever surprised that you meet long lost or long dead relatives, loved ones, that you can walk through walls? Are you ever surprised that you can fly? No. Your sense of self is radically muted. It may not be totally gone, but it's radically muted. So, so and, and this shows up in the footprints. If you look at the, the, the imaging that people have, have done when people are engaged in active dreaming, the front of the brain that's typically in, involved in that, in representing the self, sort of is, is muted. Yet you're highly conscious. In fact, during near-death experience, what may well happen, that you have a loss of reduction. Because unlike a dream, a dream is full of life. And you can be, you know, you can be sad, you can be happy, you can meet people, you can engage with them. NDE typically don't have that. Certainly, I didn't have any of that in, in my NDE. Do you mind sharing with us what happened um, to your near-death experience? What, what happened? Uh, the last thing I remember... It's too late now. And, you know, then the world shattered. My visual field sort of turned into hexagonals and like, a, you know, a honeycomb and then went all black and I dove into this tunnel. And the next thing I know is this, this luminosity, this point of overwhelming brightness and, and terror and, and ecstasy. And then it, it lasted for some timeless moment. By the clock, it was probably like nine minutes or 10 minutes. As you know, there are shared experiences between those who have the near-death experience and um, people who have transcendental, mystical experiences, or perhaps they've taken mind-altering substances like psilocybin. Are the reports similar because it's the same areas of the brain that are being transformed in similar ways? That's a big question. So, so first of all, as you, yes, it is true that the phenomenology of near-death experience has some similarity to high doses of certain types of psychedelics, psilocybin, high dose of ayahuasca, and particular 5-MeO-DMT, the toad, particularly with respect to being completely dissociated from the outside world. So in other words, you don't sense the outside world anymore, and including loss of self. That's very common. So to me, that this implies there may be a common mechanism to all of these experiences, including, by the way, the experiences that William James described in his 1908 book, uh, The Varieties of Religious Experiences, where he talks about religious conversion experience. And he really describes what we today call as a transformative experience. I wonder, Christoph, then, if you think that one of the reasons that near-death experiences of seeing the light, of seeing loved ones who have passed away, constitute an area of extreme interest is because for some people near-death experiences are evidence of life after death. Of course, yeah, yeah, that's, that's why, yes, that's why people are interested in it. And uh, 
even scientists, you know, or, or doctors who write some of these books insist that this constitutes evidence for life after death. Why? I don't think it, it does. It can be explained as an extreme uh, example of the type of experiences the brain is, is capable of. So, so I, I understand why people are fascinated by these, and I don't want to take that away from people, and you can never take the experience themselves away. So, for instance, in my case, I completely lost my fear of death. No more. That's totally gone. Why do you think it takes away the fear of death, that experience? I, I'm not quite sure. In some people, it is because for them, the, now they know that there is life after death. They're very sure of that, and that's why it takes that fear away. For me, I don't think it constitutes life after death, so that's not the reason. I don't know. Maybe it's the, um, the fact that you, the thing that's really afraid is yourself, because yourself, your ego, cannot stomach the idea of a world without the self. And under this, this near-death experience, you could perfectly well experience things, but there's no self around, and, you know, it's, it's okay. Myself isn't, isn't around. The world is, is still beautiful. Christoph Koch is a neurophysiologist best known for his work on the neural basis for consciousness. He's an investigator at the Allen Institute in Seattle and chief scientist of the Tiny Blue Dot Foundation in Santa Monica, California. This whole thing, Molly, is really quite interesting because on the one hand, we seem to be sort of investigating what's on the borderline between life and death. Maybe that's too dramatic, but you know what I'm saying. And there's something in that that tells us something about how the brain works. Well, we think that there's something that will tell us how the brain works if we can do the correct studies and analyze what are subjective experiences. The other big question about near-death experiences, other than what's happening in the brain, is whether these phenomena have meaning. Is there a reason that visions of falling into an abyss, communicating with the dead, the bright light at the end of the tunnel, that these so often occur during these experiences? Is there a, an evolutionary origin of the near-death experiences? This is what we, we ask ourselves. And actually, I do believe there is one. One hypothesis, these events have survival value. This episode of our look at critical thinking is Skeptic Jack, near-death experiences. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. The phenomenon of near-death experiences is familiar to people of different cultural backgrounds, and to some researchers, this universality suggests that these events have a biological origin and scope. 
In other words, there's an evolutionary explanation, which is not intuitive. After all, what function could there possibly be for strange and compelling experiences like seeing lights, looking into the abyss, feeling a distortion of time or a sense of peace? Well, they may have changed from their original manifestations. The idea is that their biological origin arises from a survival mechanism used by many animals, most notably uh, the marsupial that vigorously roots through your garbage until you catch it in the act, whereupon if it doesn't awkwardly flee, it falls over immobile, a convincing act of plain dead. But the opossum isn't the only animal that exhibits this defensive reaction when faced with a potentially lethal threat. Many insects, birds, and other animals exhibit what the ancient Greeks called thanatosis as well. That this might be the evolutionary mechanism underlying near-death experiences is the intriguing hypothesis that comes from a team led by Daniel Conziella, a neuroscientist in the Department of Clinical Medicine at the University of Copenhagen. And he has found a correlation between people who have NDEs and those who have interrupted REM dream states, which got us wondering. Through dreams, we travel and do and see all kinds of weird things. Why aren't near-death experiences considered a form of dreaming? Yes, absolutely. I think there's a big overlap, both in terms of phenomenology, but also in terms of uh, biological mechanisms. Near-death experiences have been uh, described in, in various cultures and in all sorts of people. Uh, so. Uh, there certainly has to be a biological mechanism to it, and it's a natural uh, cerebral phenomenon, so uh, it must be associated with uh, other normal brain conditions. And there, REM sleep is a very convincing candidate mechanism for several reasons, because uh, REM sleep happens in all of us. It happens three, four times uh, each day or each night. It comes instantaneously, and it goes instantaneously. Uh, it is associated uh, with uh, highly vivid uh, hallucinations and, and dreamlike hallucinations. And uh, like in the death experiences, there is some, some sort of uh, tonic immobility to it. So, so uh, limbs uh, go uh, limp and we cease to show motor function. What is the association that you found between people who have had a near-death experience and people who have had their REM sleep interrupted by a kind of wakefulness, where you almost are like half awake, half asleep? Are you saying that, that there's a correlation between near-death experiences and people that have certain strange uh, REM sleep phenomena? Yes. Some people are more prone to near having near-death experiences than others. There are three studies who have used uh, three different methodologies to look into the association uh, with uh, REM sleep intrusion into wakefulness and, and near-death experiences. And uh, in all three studies with uh, three different methodologies, there was a clear signal that people who are prone to having sleep REM intrusion into wakefulness stand uh, much higher chances of, of having near-death experiences. And Daniel, just to be clear, that intrusion into wakefulness is when you are like half awake and half asleep, so you're, so you're kind of hallucinating, but you're awake? It's what is known as lucid dreaming, where you know that you are having dreams. Uh, oftentimes you're unable to move because sleep paralyzes 
But if you are more prone to have lucid dreams, then you will also be more prone to, to having near-death experiences given a certain situation. It does sound like they are connected. Yeah, I, I think what, what it's certainly not the only candidate mechanism and not, certainly not the only thing that's going on in, in the brain uh, when we have near-death experiences. But it must be involved uh, because near-death experiences do happen to come instantaneously. Uh, they do happen to go away instantaneously. They're associated oftentimes with, uh, with tonic immobility and they are associated with the same sense of hyper-reality. Um, and they are associated with the possibilities to, to tell us about them uh, when that uh, dream or that experience uh, has uh, stopped. Let's look at the evolutionary or the possible evolutionary explanation for near-death experiences. I wonder if you could give us an overview of where you and other neurologists, or maybe it's just you, think that they may have originated, the biological origin. So I do believe that there is one. And this is uh, what, what is called uh, death feigning, also known as tonic immobility um, or playing dead. Death feigning is related to the old fight or flight response, right? It's a way that animals respond when they have extreme fear or shock. Is that right? It's an innate defense uh, reflex and mechanism. So either uh, you fight your opponent or you try to flee or try to escape. But actually there's a third mechanism uh, that is uh, as uh, ancient as the fight and flight uh, reflex, and that is playing dead, going limp, and see what happens. So uh, the prototypical example uh, is uh, the opossum playing dead, waiting for the uh, snake or the, uh, the wolf uh, to go away, whatever the predator is, and, and then out of a sudden it goes about its uh, activities just as like as nothing had happened. And they're and really good at it. They're really good. We've they're had really, possums. They're really good at it. And I think that the Greeks had a word for this. Thanatosis, I believe, is the word, Thanatosis, right? Thanatosis, that's right. Thanatosis, so to fake death, to play dead. But the, the interesting thing is that this is actually conserved through hundreds of millions of years through evolution. And you see that when you look at, at insects, right? So if you are chasing a, a little beetle, uh, and you want to pick that beetle up, the beetle cannot find you, of course, so it, it tries to escape. And when it no longer can escape and you have picked it up and put it on your hand, then it plays dead. If you make a cladogram that is where you some sort of tree of life, then you will see that at every point in that tree, you have evidence of animals uh, faking death for the benefit of survival. And this does happen in, in humans uh, as well. So uh, tonic immobility as a dissociation phenomenon, for instance, has been well described in, uh, uh, in victims of, of sexual assault who can no longer escape and simply go limp uh, and let it happen in order not to, to, to trigger the perpetrator into doing something that is even more cruel, that is uh, taking their lives. Um, so this is a defense mechanism that exists uh, in humans as well. 
So that you're saying that also in some medical situations, some some traumatic medical situations, the body is going into a kind of shock. It too is playing dead. The important thing is is the the dissociation and the tonic immobility. This is what makes you uh, be able to stay alive through the entire situation and and then uh, come out of it alive. I see. So it's a kind of shock that you're going into a dissociative state, a kind of shock. Um, But in many cases, people will say they, they were actively dying. They weren't, you know, in the case of the beetle or some of the other animals, they are feigning death because they want to avoid a worse fate. But it, when you're on the operating table, isn't it true that you might be dying? You don't need to fake it because you actually are. Well, you are, you are certainly not dying in that sense that your brain is dying. So what actually happens is that just right before you lose consciousness, this is what you're experiencing so then the, the question is, why does that happen uh, during cardiac arrest and other features? So there are people who, who think that uh, those experiences may help save some uh, brain energy or so. I don't think uh, this is true. I don't think there's a survival benefit. I think what happens is uh, something different. And, and we have many... Uh, examples of uh, behaviors uh, which are highly conserved in humans, uh, which uh, do not have a a meaningful function in most uh, situations any longer. Think, for example, of laughing when being tickled or yawning when you're tired. Do scientists have an explanation for why the content of near-death experiences is consistent You and I have very different dreams, I'm sure. Very few people have had the same dream, but many people have had the same kind of near-death experience that is a very bright light, maybe looking into a chasm. What is the explanation for why the content is so consistent? And yet it feels very personal to the person experiencing it. Well, actually, I think the content is not that stereotyped uh, or or consistent as you may think. There's very good work in Belgium and and, and my own group showing that uh, features of near-death experiences actually can come in in very different sequences. And not everyone is is having the same sequence and not everyone is having the same features. So there is actually a a big variety in in those near-death experiences. You explained what the adaptiveness would be of these dissociative states. Is there an adaptiveness to the content, the visions, the light? Or I'm thinking about Sebastian Younger talking about how he had a profound sense, an urgent sense that he wasn't done living. And he talked to his his father who had passed away. I think this is like asking, uh, is there meaning to your dreams that you're having during the night? And that's a good question, too. Uh, yeah, but I mean, you, you, we, we know that uh, most of our dreams are truly nonsense. But they tend to have uh, features of of something that we have experienced in reality, right? From our uh, past memories, and this is what we experience. So you don't think the content, we're paying too much attention, perhaps people are paying too much attention to the content of these near-death experiences that maybe they don't necessarily have a purpose or an adaptive value themselves. 
It's interesting, though, because for many people, they are considered people who are religious or spiritual. The content is quite important. It's considered evidence of heaven or an afterlife. I mean, this is why people are, are so fascinated with uh, with near-death experiences and uh, the, the spiritual meaning is definitely there. And uh, it's important to understand that I'm in no way trying to make people think that the spiritual meaning associated with these experiences is not valid or so. That's definitely not my, my intention. So maybe it is the humans that are importing the meaning and, and doing the interpretation of these events. Daniel Conziella, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much for the invitation. Daniel Conziella is a neuroscientist in the Department of Clinical Medicine at the University of Copenhagen. You know, Molly, it's so interesting, this uh, near-death experience scenario here. It's so interesting to me because it's exploring something that we all will go through and yet we all fear it's at the end of life and you can't you know sort of write your memoirs of it you'll have no memoirs it's it's just morbidly fascinating well seth we'll all go through death but we won't all necessarily go through a near-death experience which in order to tell that experience you need to have it and then you need to come back and yeah, share well, it with others problem. maybe you do have it and you just don't come back to tell it well that's true too that would be harder about it yeah, that would be harder to study yeah uh, yes i think it is harder to study yeah it, it's true but you know we've said and i think we also believe that this has some survival value somewhere it's interesting i hope i have one and if i do will you take notes Yes. Seth, I hope you don't have a near-death experience. I don't want you to be critically ill, although you have been in the hospital. Did you ever have any visions or anything? No, I didn't. Really, I didn't. And some of the things I was in the hospital for were serious. I mean, they could have led to death quite easily, but I don't remember having any near-death experiences. I just remember waiting for somebody to change the channel on the television. I mean, it was very prosaic. This show would not be possible without the experience of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Brian Edwards and Shannon Rose Geary. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. A special thanks to the New York Academy of Sciences for providing us with audio of their conference. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates, among other things, the basis for life and intelligence. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. Special thanks to Patreon Velociraptors, Michael Wall and Thad Engeling. And further thanks to one of our Patreon space explorers, Bill Cork of Union City, California. The original music in the show is by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This Skeptic Check episode of Big Picture Science is Near-Death Experiences. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. 
We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.